Sisters and brothers, it is an honor and a privilege for me to be here with you. I, I was so delighted to receive an invitation uh, to be here. I, um, <laughs> you, if you follow me on social media, and some of you do, or I follow you because I don't really do much on social media, but you may have seen, I posted a picture uh, recently of the church building, the space we were renting back in 19... I think the building, by the time we got it, it was like 1990 or 91 or something like that. But our church was called New Community that we started in Brooklyn, New York. So uh, when we moved to the area, we uh, visited uh, uh, New Community Brownsville and always just have had this warm spot for new, any church called New Community. And I said, and to be in our same uh, denomination, well, I wasn't in the covenant then when I started that New Community, but, but of course there's a warm spot I have for New Community. You know, I met my wife, Susan, when I first started visiting a church in Ithaca, New York, during our years at Cornell University. And eventually, Susan and I became friends, largely because of Bible study groups, church, our involvement in a campus ministry. Now, I'm not telling you this history to make marriage sound like, you know, the end all and be all of human existence, because it isn't. We don't disparage singleness or treat unmarried people like, like, like they're a, there's a scourge or a dysfunction of some sort. I'm telling you about my relationship with Susan so you can know me a bit better, but also to introduce my message for today. Because Susan and I grew as friends. Eventually we started dating and well, the rest is history as they say. We have four adult children three of whom are married. We are blessed to have five grandchildren, four of them born since the spring of 2019, so there was a lot happening in the last couple of years or so. The story of our relationship is not unusual as most relationships go this way. First, there's an encounter, then intimacy, and with time, the genuine partnership gets created, a true bond. I want to talk a bit more about that as we enter our study of the book called First John. Could you join with me as I read aloud from verse 1 into the beginning of chapter 2? This is 1 John chapter 1. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed. And we have seen it and testified to it and declared to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And true fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just will forgive our sins 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now by this, we may be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. Whoever says, I have come to know him but does not obey his commandments is a liar. And in such a person, the truth does not exist. But whoever obeys his word truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. John is talking about a bond. I introduced talking about our relationship, our partnership. Because bonds get tested over time. You know. There's always going to be issues that threaten your partnership. There will always be disagreements, and, you know, unless you're in you know, marriage different from ours or friendship different from ours. But healthy relationships develop practices to nurture the relationship, make it stronger. And when a relationship gets stronger, it can withstand almost any challenge. And that ongoing process of nurturing our friendships, we, we discover genuine joy. Now, I know not every moment of every relationship is fun unless you're newlyweds. But Ju Susan and I certainly have times when we are not, you know, happy with each other. But there is a deep-seated sense of satisfaction that we could call joy. Joy is emotional for sure, but it doesn't have to express itself as giddy, childlike delight at all times. Sometimes joy is knowing that we are there for each other, even when we feel out of sorts. True friendships, genuine relationships can produce joy. This is what John is getting at. We develop a joyful solidarity. That's what's happening here as we get into the beginning of 1 John. I mean, it's a, it's a brief writing that we call a letter. It doesn't even sound like a letter at all. I don't have time to get into the stuff I talk about in a seminary class, and you're probably glad I'm not getting into the, all the stuff I talk about in a seminary class. But if you were to uh, compare this book to what we do call letters, you'd see things that are different. You know, there's no name at the beginning or end. In fact, the name John's not in here at all. And then, speaking of the end, when you get to the end, there's this, this mic drop. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Boom. He's out. What's up with that? <laughs> we'll get there in time. But right now, we're considering just this beginning. And John starts out, it's not, I read from the NRSV, which it's a very difficult Greek sentence. I won't get into all of it. But he actually starts out with a, with a, with a pronoun. What? he says, was from the beginning. What we have seen, what we have heard, he describes an encounter using sensory words. He was part of a group that heard, that saw, that touched, and otherwise examined something concerning the word of life. The, that word of life is Jesus, but John speaks not just about the fleshly body of Jesus, but the what that encompasses his person, his teachings, his way of life, even his death and resurrection. John describes an encounter. He isn't just saying we saw Jesus. He's saying we experienced Jesus. As I said earlier, a healthy, meaningful, safe encounter leads to intimacy. 
And John's experience, his meaningful encounter with Jesus led to solidarity with the Lord. But not only that, John is able to experience solidarity with everyone else who has a meaningful encounter with Jesus. What I'm saying is that an authentic encounter with Jesus leads to joyful solidarity. An authentic encounter leads to joyful solidarity. We encounter Jesus in different ways for sure. The Apostle Paul, as you may know, was Saul of Tarsus, a zealous, well-educated Jewish man persecuting the early followers of Jesus. Saul had a cataclysmic encounter with Jesus on the way to persecute Christians in Syria. But not every Jesus follower has such a dramatic encounter. I mean, some of the other apostles were busy going about their business catching fish or collecting taxes when they encountered Jesus and had about three years to connect with him over their journey in an ongoing relationship, something Paul didn't have actually. They may not have had an encounter with Jesus like Saul of Tarsus. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you were never blinded by the light. Maybe perhaps over time you came to hear, to see, to examine that something that came from Jesus like that light on the Damascus road. That something is real, even if hard to describe. It's like, it's like that light. Light is real, but it's hard to quantify, hard to describe, hard to contain. Light indicates power. You know, maybe in school you learned about light in physics class. I'm not going to give you a long science lesson, but I used to teach chemistry, physics, and math. I have an engineering degree, so I like these kinds of things, but, but this is not time for you to go to sleep. I'm just making a point. Sometimes light acts in a Newtonian way, like particles. Sometimes it has wave-like properties, like electromagnetic waves, like sound. Maybe you got introduced to quantum theory. You learned about light consisting of photons, these bundles, massless bundles of energy. Light's hard to define, but we know it when it's gone. Without light, we are enveloped in darkness. And darkness can be dangerous. I mean, think about our friends in Haiti or in New Orleans, devastated by earthquakes, a hurricane, lose power, no lights. Darkness can be disorienting. And in the dark, you bump into things. In the dark, it's hard to do your normal activities. In the dark, washing is complicated. Cooking is dangerous. Reading is impossible. You sit and you wait. I'm a city kid. I grew up in New York City, and I recall as a kid, you know, you go to the woods on some kind of camping experience. The darkness is so intense that you can almost feel it. It's very frightening. All my country friends, they just laugh at me, but I'm like, they go camping, camping. I'm like, camping to me is a, is, is a, is a hotel near a forest, okay? <laughs> but sometimes that darkness is so intense you can almost feel it. I mean, it's just threatening. It's ominous. And darkness can make you feel alone. It can make you feel insignificant. It's no wonder a lot of children and even some adults have, a, have scotophobia, fear of darkness. We know what it means to feel physically in the dark. But there's other kinds of darkness. Moral darkness. Intellectual darkness. Some people are in moral and ideological darkness. They resist the truth. They deny reality. They grab hold of conspiracy theories. They, they cling to racist, patriarchal, and other hateful ideologies. They grope around in darkness, and in their groping, they bump up against other people. They cause pain, alienation, confusion. Darkness is a shroud. And in our times, there are people who believe a mythology about whiteness, about America. Mythologies about dark-skinned people or about women or even about God. When people who have worldly power 
also function in moral and intellectual darkness, they cause tremendous damage. At my age, I have a lot of stories, too many to share with you, but I recall opportunities I've had to preach at Christian camps or churches, maybe discuss the issue of race and power, only to be rebuked or dismissed by people who claim to be in the light, but actually were operating in darkness. This is what's happening, I think, with all the hoopla around critical race theory. People operating in darkness, refusing to come to the light. It made me wonder if people ever had a genuine encounter with God. I mean, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says people prefer darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So we wonder about an encounter with God when people continue to operate in darkness. John says in verse 5, God is light. Nothing is clear in the darkness. We need the light. A genuine encounter, authentic encounter with Jesus leads to joyful solidarity. And I'm saying now that an authentic encounter with Jesus brings light to our darkness. John declares that God is light. I've been saying light and you've been catching the metaphor. Light is a metaphor for truth. And in this section, that next section, verses 5 to 10, one thing John is saying is that we cannot operate in the darkness and simultaneously claim to be in the light. An authentic encounter with Jesus exposes what has been covered in darkness. You know, I have this last name, Edwards. It's an English name. I have no idea how my family got it, such as the legacy of slavery in the USA. But you can imagine how during my seminary years, I would hear about this theologian guy named Jonathan Edwards, and I'd perk up. I'd say, Edwards, that's my name. And I, I picked up in seminary some things about his theological contributions, greatly celebrated by evangelicals. But it wasn't until later that I discovered that he enslaved black people. So our friend here, Dr. Michael Emerson, he's been one of those bold voices to shed light on some of American Christianity's darkness including the fact that some evangelical heroes enslaved people. I was working on an essay for something, and I came to realize that the son of Jonathan Edwards, another Jonathan Edwards, was an abolitionist. It's fascinating to me. It tells me that you're not predestined to remain in the darkness. <laughs> I knew y'all would get that. <laughs> you can come to the light. The more we grow in our encounter with Jesus, the brighter the light becomes. We start to see things more clearly. We learn to develop a way of life that yearns for the light. And John, like other biblical writers, he describes this way of life as walking. It's there in verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship while we are walking in darkness, we lie. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. So right now would be a good time for me to ask you a historic covenant church question. How goes your walk? If you've been in the Evangelical Covenant Church, you know there were, there were a couple of questions that we historically referred to. Where is it written? And how goes your walk? That's fitting for this moment when we think about light and walking. Are you moving toward the light or toward darkness? Are you renouncing lies or propagating them? Are you dropping bad habits or rationalizing them? Are you pursuing healthy relationships or running away from them? Do you honestly value God's human mosaic? Or is that just the right thing to say in our nation's current climate? 
You see, an authentic encounter with Jesus brings light to darkness, and that light not only exposes, it transforms. Light is energy. It has the power to burn away impurities. God is light, and God not only exposes those things that have been hiding in the darkness, God also takes them away. God takes them away through Jesus. The Lord's death cleanses us. The Lord's death is referred to graphically here with the word blood. The word blood, for you English grammar lovers, is an example of synecdoche. Not the city in New York, that's Schenectady. Synecdoche is a figure of speech where a part of something stands for the whole. Blood here means the sacrificial death of Jesus. Now, during my time when I was a pastor at the Sanctuary Covenant Church, I was the lead pastor there, and we got a, a worship leader who had us sing a hymn, which was something that did not frequently happen at the sanctuary. We did not frequently sing hymns. And later that day, the person who ran the sound system at church put a post on Facebook, and I, it cracked me up so that I have saved it. And um, this is what he says, quote, as long as I can remember, I've had to, de to debate people, usually older people, on what genres of music are okay to be Christian music. I present for you, for your consideration, a really old hymn from church this morning. He posted these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And then he says, that's the most metal thing I've ever seen. <laughs> he had me cracking up and I had to think, we old folks. Sometimes don't realize how creepy it does sound to be singing about blood, a fountain filled with blood. I mean, oh my goodness. But, but the death of Jesus ironically makes us clean. Because Jesus died, we can have life, real life, life in the light. In fact, John will say later on in chapter 3, verse 8, that he died, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus destroys the devil's work. He washes away the sin, the evil that keeps us shrouded in darkness. Amen. He says something else at the beginning of chapter 2. He says that Jesus is our advocate. He's our counselor, our, our friend. But he's also the one who died for us, the atoning sacrifice. Jesus shed his blood so we could have abundant, meaningful, joyful, eternal life. Amen. So, so far, I've said an, an authentic encounter with Jesus leads to joyful solidarity. I've said that an authentic encounter with Jesus brings light to our darkness. And I have one more point I want to draw from these opening verses of 1 John. Joyful solidarity depends on love, on love. John says in chapter 2, verse 5, but whoever obeys his word truly in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. Love is central, as we would all imagine. And we're going to get into that because chapters 2, 3, and 4 say a great deal about love. But for now, I just want to point out that love is part of what I've been calling joyful solidarity. Now, I put this, these words together a while ago. So when I was hearing Brother Brian up here talk about running, and World Vision's ministry and the difference between charity and solidarity, I was like, amen, amen, he's talking my language. John referred to having complete or full joy as he communicates to his beloved community. 
And along the way, he's using a word. It's a Greek word, and I don't mind dropping this one because it's one you may have heard of because it gets floated around in Christian circles a lot. It's the word koinonia. It's translated here as fellowship. Perfectly fine translation. But I sometimes wonder if the word fellowship has lost something along the way. I was having this discussion with my Greek exegesis class because we've been translating this book of 1 John. So I suggested translating koinonia as solidarity. That word means partnership, sharing, and similar sorts of ideas. Because sadly, American Christian subculture has turned koinonia into coffee and snacks. So we label a room fellowship hall, or we say there'll be a time of fellowship when we really mean kibitzing. I tell you, I'm from New York, so I grew up with a lot of Jewish friends who would say the Yiddish that they learned from their parents. Kibitz is a verb, it's a Yiddish verb. It describes standing around talking, making wisecracks, and sometimes it's talking when you're supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> it's spelled with a K, not to be confused with kibbutz. That's a farm, different thing. Kibitz. Christians fall into a trap of taking koinonia to be casual interaction and not strategic, intimate partnership. Solidarity suggests mutuality. It describes joint effort. It, it, it pictures people working together for a common cause. Solidarity is a word that has been used by alienated people in their efforts for justice, so I'm also drawn to it for that reason. The early Christians, marginalized Christian movement, following an executed enemy of Rome with an initially unpopular interpretation of Israel's scriptures who claimed to be the unique son of God. These early Christians had a lot working against them, but no matter where they were within the Roman Empire, they were continually encouraged to be united, to rejoice even in the midst of trials, and to walk the way that Jesus walked. So back in verse 4, John mentioned joy in the context of experiencing koinonia. He uses that word in a few times. Verse 3, koinonia with other Jesus followers. Verse 7, he says it. He says it in verse 6. He said the word koinonia several times in just these opening words. And he describes this interconnectedness of Christian community. Koinonia is partnership. It's forming bonds. I mentioned physics. Now I'm going to mention chemistry. Because when I hear the word bond, I can't help but to think of the bond that elements form to make compounds. One type of bond is a covalent one. It's created by elements sharing electrons. And when these elements share electrons, they create an entirely new entity, a compound that has its own unique properties, its own set of characteristics, its own new boiling point, or no new vapor pressure. This is how it is with the people of God. We are a unique entity with a peculiar set of characteristics that reflect God's light to the world. Compu peculiar can mean strange, but it can also mean intriguing. We are an intriguing people. At least we ought to be. We maintain joyful solidarity through love, but recognize that we might fall short at times, and John knows this. He's, he's getting after it. It happens in every relationship. The way to keep joyful solidarity with God and with each other is to remember that when we mess up, we fess up, then we make up. When we mess up, we fess up, we make up. John says we'd be deceiving ourselves if we claim that we are free from sin. 
And he goes on to encourage us that we can confess our sins and trust God to forgive us and blot out the unrighteousness. When we mess up, we fess up and we, we then make up. And what it means for John is that we renew our desire to once again walk deliberately into the light. John calls that walking in light, obeying God's commands. Now, obedience is not a popular word because we tend to think of it as, as the slavish submission to some harsh taskmaster. But obedience is really about what it takes to preserve joyful solidarity. Obedience is paying attention. Ode- obedience is respect. Obedience is submission to whatever is needed for love to thrive. If I tell you that I don't like pickled beets, and I don't, please don't feed me pickled beets, obedience would mean if I come over to your house, you won't serve me pickled beets. Not because I commanded it, but out of love, you would respect my desire, at least as an attempt to preserve our friendship. That's a bit like what's going on here. God commands us. But his commands are designed to enhance our joyful solidarity with God and with other people. Obedience is not slavish deference to some random commands. Obedience is about listening, about paying attention, about respecting another person's desires. And obeying God's commands are not about jumping through some random hoops. But obeying God means paying attention to what God desires so that I can experience this joyful solidarity. What does God desire? We know it. The Gospels tell us Jesus had this interchange with some experts in Jewish law, and it went like this. Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We're going to see, as we continue through this book called First John, that the focus is indeed on the commandments to love God and love one another. Obedience to those commandments leads to joyful solidarity. You as a church are going through Pastor Rich Velotis' book, The Deeply Formed Life, and this is wonderful. And I trust that as you seek the Lord together, working through the book, you'll continue to passionately pursue God's light. And as you're drawn into the light, you'll experience joyful solidarity with God and with each other, with your sisters and brothers who are also striving to walk in the light. So my friends, during this week... Let's be mindful of the joyful solidarity that God wants us to experience. We participate in the life of Jesus. We share life with one another. So take a few moments each day and ask God, who is light, to expose anything that's been covered in darkness, to clean away evil impurities. I know I can sometimes withdraw from God and others as a reaction to sin, to disappointments, to the various hurts I've experienced because I mistakenly think God wants to be mean to me or embarrass me. This is not what God does. Not only is God light, God is love. John will say that too. And when you take those moments each day to ask for God's light, also remember God's love. I regularly confess that God is good and he loves me to counteract the negative impression of God that I had growing up. Light and love 
God is light. God is love. So through our continuing encounter with Jesus, we experience God's light and God's love. Our sensory experience, our, our authentic encounter with Jesus leads us to joyful solidarity with God and with each other. The Lord bless you, my sisters and brothers. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are, for what you do, and thank you for the word that John has revealed to us, has given to us, how he's passionately communicated to his own beloved community, and we get to share solidarity even with them, these saints from the past. I pray, Lord God, that you would continue to strengthen my sisters and brothers here at New Community, that you would show them all they need to see, all they need to experience on their journey together. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.